the beginning, and I'm talking the very beginning, there was, well, there was nothing. And then, although we're not sure when or how, something lived. Our best guess is 3.8 billion years ago and warm underwater vents. Either way, our universe had its very own Frankenstein moment. We kind of know where the story goes from here thanks to a very smart man named Charles Darwin. This tiny microorganism adapts and evolves and mutates and competes with every other microorganism to become me and you and everyone and everything else. This tiny microorganism is the first winner. And today, I want to talk about the ones that came after. Hi, I'm Izzy, and welcome back to Politics Etc., the show where you and I try to navigate the ins and outs of our world's politics by looking at them through every possible lens. If you like politics, then sit down and take a listen. And if you're interested in Harry Potter, the search for immortality, and the story of an infamous leader responsible for an unparalleled tragedy, you might want to tune in today. Charles Darwin, the man I mentioned earlier, outlines the process of evolution, how we got from single-celled organisms to fish and birds and humans. It's something that seems like a no-brainer now. The organisms with advantages lived, and the others died until we streamlined those millions of variations into the few that thrive in Earth-specific environment. Way back when, the advantageous traits that ensured survival were things like photosynthesis, the ability to turn sunlight into food, and having a DNA structure where your genetic info could be stored and passed on. It's like the world's first hard drive. Today, although we may not think of it this way, we are still emulating this process. The best ideas win out. This is how we have the tastiest food, the most entertaining entertainment, the most convenient tech, the comfiest clothes, and on and on and on. And it's happening among us humans still, too. But instead of skills like photosynthesis, those who rise have ones like charisma and determination. And these people don't herald a new species, necessarily, but they prevail in a different way. We let them control us, or at least trust them to make and enforce the rules that do. Do you see what I'm getting at here? The process of streamlining and selecting really reminds me of the way that our political leaders rise. A person who takes up a position of power in a democracy, for example, has used their charm or otherwise incentivized the people into lifting him or her up. An autocrat, similarly, uses his or her power, wealth, and resolve to keep the crown. It's a super interesting phenomenon to me which people are chosen for greatness and why. What strategies do these people use and why do they work or not work on us? It's like the old story of the tortoise and the hare. That taught us that slow and steady wins the race, but does it always? The hare's flashy showmanship and confidence he will succeed 
I can see more readily reflected in today's politics. Regardless, today, I want to look into some of the crazier ways that political leaders have taken and retained power. And we're going to start by looking at one of my favorite things of all time, Harry Potter. So even if you haven't read every book and kept up with every spinoff, you can't doubt the insane cultural impact that the franchise has had on the world. A couple days ago, I was at the mall and I saw a line of Harry Potter vans on display at the front of a shoe store. This kind of shocked me because it's literally 12 years after the last book has come out. Corporations continue to pump out movie spinoffs and amusement park rides and iPhone games and collaborations with popular shoe brands. To this day, slapping the Harry Potter name on something is a guaranteed cash grab. And obviously, this continued HP frenzy is due to J.K. Rowling's super inventive world-building and engaging fantasy storylines, but also how the books work thematically. They teach people, like I know they taught me as a kid, values like friendship and bravery and thinking for yourself. The latter concept is backed up by another subtler theme that I think is super interesting to find in a kid's series, mistrust of authority. In the books, the three main characters, Harry, Ron, and Hermione, who are students aged 11 to 17 as the stories go on, mostly provide the moral compass. They have to develop this inherent sense of good because many of the adults that we see in significant positions of power prove to be untrustworthy. So who are these authority figures? Well, the Minister of Magic, for one, Cornelius Fudge, who is the most powerful political figure in the wizarding world. He is constantly plagued by a fear of dealing with difficult issues and a desire to retain power that prevents him from being a reliable leader to his people. Another character, Dolores Umbridge, is the second in command in the wizarding government, so the VP, if you will. When the main characters are 15, she is appointed at the wizarding school, Hogwarts, as a professor. She turns out to be a moral fanatic intent on reforming the school according to her own twisted and bigoted views. So, the characters learn that governmental leaders can't be trusted. Dumbledore is the wise old headmaster of Hogwarts who projects this kind of aura of unflappable goodness, as well as being a father figure to Harry, the main character. Even he, we find out, um, there are spoilers here, even though the books are 12 years old, uh, we find out he has concealed and twisted the truth in order to essentially lead our main character to his grave. Of course, this was for the greater good, but it's some serious moral gray area, if you ask me. But the message is clear. Even the adults who we as kids are expected to trust indiscriminately are not without their own faults. Their titles may imply trustworthiness or goodness, but their character may not reflect these things. This isn't always as ominous as it is in the stories, though. It doesn't mean they're always bad people, it just means they're people. Despite their fancy job description, they have flaws and they make mistakes, but they may well still be the best man or woman for the job. As a kid, this was super easy for me to come to terms with living in America, 
And that's probably because this fact is somewhat embraced in democracies. Candidates often take a grassroots approach to getting into office, which means they appeal to the people with a kind of I'm just like you mentality. And this works because with the choice to vote, I'm likely to vote for someone who's similar to me in the hopes that we will have the same expectations for our government. Then what they do in office likely will benefit me. On the other side of the spectrum, reigning dictators in authoritarian regimes or wannabe dictators seem to be very averse to the idea that they are at all like their constituents. They are usually not worrying about getting voted in and thus about winning the favor of their people. Their first priority is making sure their power is not taken away. And if you present yourself like just your average Joe, it's a lot easier for someone to think, hey, we can overthrow this dude. Those were the thoughts of a boy named Tom Riddle, an unassuming name, which he hated. He changes his name to Lord Voldemort, which has a more ominous ring to it, yeah, in the Harry Potter books, and thus becomes one of the most notorious fictional villains of all time. He wants exclusive reign over the wizarding world, and above all, he craves immortality. So he wants the power, and he never wants it to end. It's kind of a scary prospect, actually, a never-ending dictator. And it's actually something that has its roots in reality. What better way to convince the people you're ruling to stay submissive than to hint at the threatening message that the rules of humanity don't apply to you? So with this, we're going to dive a little bit into the psychology of a real-life dictator. Way up there at the top of the food chain, surrounded only by yes-men who will tell you whatever you want to hear, it's got to give you an inflated sense of self-worth. There's a desperation there to retain your position, and a narcissism that comes from thinking you're the only one who's worthy of it. Growing old and appearing weak must be a constant looming fear. Hosni Mubarak, who served as president and ruthless dictator of Egypt for 30 years, well into his 80s, had startlingly black hair the whole time, obviously died, and wore face makeup in his public appearances. Many other dictators use these same tactics, altering their appearance as they grow older. Donald Trump, here in America, while he is decidedly not a dictator, he is undoubtedly obsessed with some of the same goals, like discrediting and quelling opposition, usually taking form of trying to discredit the media, and wanting to display the image of a healthy leader. This is evidenced by his trademark yellow blonde hair and exaggerated tan despite his age. Now, it's a far cry from cosmetic alterations to claiming actual immortality, but stay with me, because there are some politicians that really toe this line. Vladimir Putin, president of Russia, close friend of Donald Trump, comes to mind. He's got this cult of personality that he's created around himself, it's a perfectly cultivated image based on the fact that he has intimidating physical prowess. If he was going for strong leader, you can't get more literal than this. The Russian media is littered with pictures and articles about Putin winning at judo, Putin skiing, Putin horseback riding shirtless, Putin piloting a fighter jet. Um, he allegedly 
single-handedly saved a camera crew from an escaped Siberian tiger by shooting it with a tranquilizer gun. That sentence just keeps getting crazier with every clause you add to it. But take that one with a big grain of salt. It was only reported by Russian-owned media, and there is conveniently no real evidence of this actually occurring. Do you want to get even crazier? Nasingbe Eadema, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, he was the dictator of Togo, and he went totally full send with this concept. He let rumors spread of his invincibility. There was a whole comic book series based off of him, the superhero of Togo. In 1974, he was involved in this terrible plane crash. He was the sole survivor, which looked very good for the whole immortality thing, I'm sure. He made a monument out of the remains of the crash, but not to remember the victims or anything, but to celebrate his own greatness for surviving. The monument was called the Feast of Victory over the Forces of Evil. It really makes me wonder the amount of power it takes to turn someone normal into this kind of self-aggrandizing narcissist. Uh, by the way, if you're looking for some kind of cosmic karma, he actually dies on a plane in 2005. After all, he was just a guy, mortal as everyone else. These commanding and evil figures that have been and always will be present in politics are just your average Joe. They had a powerful family or a ton of money or a lot of tenacity and determination, but they're just people. It's like the wizard in The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy like rips back his curtain and he's just this like old bald dude sitting back there controlling this giant scary facade. Without all his adornments, it kind of makes you go, who decided this guy was going to rule us? It's important that we remember that leaders' efforts to invoke some kind of wizardry, literal or otherwise, to convince you that they are somehow superhuman are hollow. But next, I want to talk about someone who used a different kind of magic to convince quite a lot of people to follow him. I've been obsessed with this story ever since I heard about it a couple years ago. This man's name is Jim Jones, and he is the founder of Jonestown. All right, I want to bring you back to the late 1970s in America. In the wake of the civil rights movement, the ideas of peace and tolerance were being slowly diffused, but... African Americans were still facing overwhelming discrimination. Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., and John F. Kennedy had all recently died, and these were the major powerful figures rallying for civil rights, violently murdered. I imagine that the future for equality may have looked bleak at this point. How do you fill those roles, right? find another natural-born leader who is also willing to put his or her life on the line for the cause. Enter Jim Jones, a young and charismatic religious devotee. Jones had this smooth, drawling voice and a calming presence that could yield to a raging temper. He spoke provocatively and eloquently. He preached in Indiana and then San Francisco to mixed-race audiences. He was incredibly outspoken in his support of racial equality. It had caused him to leave his old church and create his own. The church was called the People's Temple, and aptly so because for the people it was. 
His followers thought almost as highly of him as Jones did of himself. But soon, being the leader of this church simply wasn't enough for him. The church became what would later be known as Jonestown, which Jones dreamed to be an autonomous, utopian community. No racism, no inequality, only God. And right below him, Jim Jones. You see what I mean about him using his own kind of magic? He was preying on the hope, making these big, attractive, maybe unattainable promises to a group of people who really needed a silver lining. So 1,200 members followed him to the South American country of Guyana to live in this communist community under Jones's watchful eye. From here, things get strange fast. Jones's voice would be blasted from loudspeakers at all hours. The members of the temple were getting abused psychologically and physically. Black members were brainwashed into thinking that they'd be put into government-run concentration camps if they dared leave Jonestown. This is particularly disgusting to me. Jones, ever a proponent of equality, had started using these people's fears about racial intolerance against them. Anyway, I'm not sure how, but the complaints reached some people in the U.S. Embassy. Congressman Leo Ryan traveled down there to check things out. And this is where it all hits the fan. Someone slips Ryan a note during his visit. The note just says, help us. He starts rounding up the people who want to leave, and they're driving to the airstrip, home free, until... Until some of Jones's fanatics arrive at the airstrip and start shooting. Five people, including Congressman Ryan, are killed. Back at the commune, sirens are wailing from the loudspeakers. Jones is in a panic, ordering all members of the People's Temple to congregate. He knows he's done for. Word of the shooting will get back to America soon enough, and he'll be in some serious trouble. But he will not go out on their terms. In front of him are gallons of purple Kool-Aid, spiked liberally with poison. He orders his manipulated followers to give the drinks to the children first, and then drink themselves. Over 900 people die. It's the largest loss of American life until 9-11. I don't even know if I should call it a mass suicide. I feel like there's a lot of confusion over what it was, but to me it seems clearly like a massacre. Sure, Jones didn't hand them the poison, but he had them so brainwashed that it didn't seem like it was their own doing when they all died. These people are dropping to the ground while Jones raves over the loudspeaker in this crazed manifesto. There's a transcript and I think a recording of this speech. If you'd ever want to listen to it, it is super disturbing. At one point, he says to a member of the church, I'm going to tell you, Christine, without me, life has no meaning. And this is met with tremendous applause from those still standing. So that was not a super positive note to end on, I know. I wish I could offer some sort of wisdom, a quick tip to spot crazy leaders before we decide to grace them with our vote or our following. But there's honestly no way if this last example was any indication. Is it our fault? Are we choosing wrong? Does the crazy come from the power, or do they gain power because they're crazy? 
These questions probably won't ever be answered. But thank you for coming with me on this tour through some leaders and their tactics anyway. I hope you stick around for the next episode. I'm Izzy, and this is Politics Etc. I'll see you next time.